Let us pray. Living God, we believe that you enabled Matthew, the tax collector, to write down these words which we have just heard. We believe that in your sovereignty, you have saved them for us to hear them tonight. And I pray in your mercy and grace that you will help us understand what we've read, but more than understand, that we will actually experience the reality of which they speak. For we pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. What does it all mean? Total darkness at midday for three hours. The earth shaking, the rocks splitting without being struck, graves being opened and corpses coming to life, and the curtain in the temple, that thick, huge curtain in the sanctuary built by Herod the Great, being torn in two from top to bottom. Phenomena as historical as filling a sponge with wine vinegar and putting it on a stick. What is going on? I submit to you that it is all directly related to the cry from the cross, to Jesus' cry, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. The extraordinary phenomena of Good Friday either interpret or result from, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Given who he is, given the identity of the one on the cross, ought there not be some effect in the surrounding environment? The Roman centurion, keeping watch at the cross, watches Jesus die, witnesses this extraordinary phenomena, and realizes that Jesus is no ordinary man. Surely, he says, this was the Son of God. Now, we do not know what the soldier meant by that title, but we do know how Matthew wants us to take it. For Matthew, Son of God means God the Son. For Matthew, Son of God means Emmanuel, God with us. If Emmanuel cries out from the cross, ought not the cry in some way affect the surrounding environment? If it is God with us who agonizes so deeply, ought not the created order feel the agony? When he was born into the world through the Virgin Mary, the gospel writers tell us that the darkness of the midnight sky was lit up by a heavenly choir singing for joy. Matthew goes further and tells us that one of the stars in the sky actually moved. Look, says Matthew, the star which the Magi had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. The star seemed to actually have been pulled in by infant Emmanuel. If his being born in the world disturbed the natural order, how much more his dying? Thus can Isaac Watts sing, well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when God, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Darkness at midday 
for three hours. And look, the earth shook, the rocks split, graves were open, and that curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, all directly related to the cry from the deepest recesses of Emmanuel. The question, therefore, on just about every Good Friday, is what does this cry mean? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken. Was he? Was he forsaken? It's a strong verb that is used. It means abandoned, cut off, deserted. Was he? Was Jesus of Nazareth in that moment objectively forsaken by the one who sent him? Cut off from the one by whom and for whom he has lived? Or was he only feeling forsaken and his feelings having no basis in reality? At minimum, this story teaches us that Jesus knows the experience of abandonment. Of all human experiences, feeling abandoned by one who loves you comes the closest to the experience of death. This text teaches us that Jesus knows this experience firsthand. My friend Dale Bruner then says, commenting on this text, Jesus dies before he dies. Before his literal death, Jesus suffers the death of feeling abandoned. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? You, my Father, with whom I have lived in intimacy from all eternity. Me, your only begotten Son, who has been your delight for all eternity. Why have you forsaken me? Was he? Was he forsaken? As we've pointed out on different Good Fridays, many interpreters take the position that Jesus was not objectively forsaken, that he was only feeling forsaken. And, and I can appreciate why they take this interpretation. The thought that Jesus was really abandoned by God touches the great fear that we might be abandoned by God. If the Father abandons the Son, if God the Father forsakes God the Son, what security do we have? A number of interpreters who take the position that Jesus' cry of desolation is not based in reality argue that in actual fact, Jesus' cry turns out to be an affirmation that in the end, everything is going to be okay. Why do they interpret that? Because the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the first verse of Psalm 22. And it is argued, in light of the prayer practices of the first century, Jesus is praying the whole of Psalm 22. Simply by praying the first verse, he's implicitly praying the whole psalm. And it is argued that Psalm 22, although beginning in the raw, frightening feeling of abandonment, ends up with the assurance that everything is going to be okay. I appreciate that line of reasoning. It has much to commend itself in light of first century prayer practices. But I ask, if Jesus in that moment of agony is really saying that in spite of the agony, he was not forsaken, 
Could he not have prayed a psalm which says that more clearly? Could he not have prayed the first verse of the psalm that comes before Psalm 22? Psalm 21, verse 1, O Lord, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your victory how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire. Or better yet, could Jesus not have prayed the first verse of the psalm that comes after Psalm 22? Psalm 23, 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, that leads up then to the most perfect verse to pray. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. But he did not pray those other verses because Jesus' feelings of forsakenness do have basis in reality. Jesus had told his disciples again and again that he must go to Jerusalem and be crucified. He must. Why? To deal with the problem created by human sin on the one hand and the character of God on the other hand. Sin separates us from the living God. Mark that word, separates Sin cuts us off from the living God. And so the prophet Isaiah says, The Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither is his ear so dull it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation, made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah himself feels this separation when he has a vision of the Lord exalted high and he automatically cries out, woe is me for I'm an unclean man and live among a people of unclean lips. Sin separates at a profoundly fundamental level. Now here's the gospel. At his baptism, in accordance with the will of his father, the Son of God chooses, chooses to identify with sinful humanity. John the Baptist had called sinners to go down in the river to repent. And there he is, Emmanuel, getting in line with the sinners. What is Jesus, the sinless one, doing going down into the river? The sinless one is taking on our sin. He's becoming one of us. Karl Barth, the great 20th century theologian, said that when Jesus walks into the water, he's the one great sinner who repents. The sinless one becomes sinful humanity. The apostle Paul puts it even more boldly. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. And then, at the cross... Again, in accordance with the will of his Father, the Son of God chooses to bear the judgment of God upon human sin. And what is the nature of that judgment? What is the nature of that judgment? Is it not separation from God? Is it not the just penalty of sin to experience total alienation from God, being cut off from the source of life. While hanging on that cross, Jesus bore the judgment for the human race. That is, he bore for us this inevitable separation which sin causes and deserves. The passion in Jesus' cry matches the reality of the moment. He is forsaken. In that moment, he is objectively experiencing 
the profound horror of separation from God, the cry of of dereliction expresses the unfathomable pain of real abandonment by the Father. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. But how? How can it be? How can Emmanuel, God with us, be abandoned by God? Martin Luther asked, God forsaken of God, who can understand it? That a human being could be forsaken of God, we shudder to contemplate, but we can comprehend, right? But that the man from Galilee, the God-man, could be forsaken by God, how can it be? How can there be a real abandonment, a real separation? The Father is God, the Son is God. How can God be separated from God? As incomprehensible as it is, I submit to you that in that moment, the inconceivable happens. The real separation from God that we sinners deserve has been taken up by God into God. Let me say that again. The real separation from God, which we sinners deserve, has been taken up by God into God. The total alienation which sin deserves is taken up by God and is experienced within God as the separation between the Father and the Son. Eloi, Eloi. There's no more mysterious moment in history. There's no more central or pivotal moment of history. Thus the darkness and the earth shaking and the rocks splitting, and the graves opening, and that curtain being torn in two from top to bottom. Darkness. No natural process can account for those three hours of midday darkness. It could not have been an eclipse, for the moon was full, as it always is as Passover. The darkness is God's doing. Throughout Scripture, darkness is a sign of judgment. Darkness over the land was one of the ten plagues which God inflicted on Egypt when Pharaoh would not let his people go. Darkness was a token that the land was under a curse. Throughout Scripture, darkness is a sign of separation, of abandonment. So Jesus speaks of hell as the outer darkness. The prophet Amos foretold that on the great day of the Lord, darkness would come. Amos 8, verse 9. Listen, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark at broad daylight, and I will make it like a time of mourning for an only sun. The sun goes down at noon, a time of mourning for an only sun. Is not the darkness of Good Friday... Not only the judgment of God, but the mourning of God the Father for his Son, bearing the judgment. And the the earth shook. Of, Of course, if he is the Son of God, God the Son, Emmanuel, God with us, ought not the earth, which he sustains by his word, tremble as he trembles? Here is the ground of all being, suffering and dying. Ought there not be some sort of cosmic vibration? Ought not the created order, or at least the created order near the cross, resonate with the pain of its its creator? And the rocks split without being struck. Of course, if the rock of ages is splitting inside, ought not the agony send shockwaves throughout the universe? When Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, 
you remember the crowds began to praise him. And the authorities exhort Jesus to stop them from praising him. And you remember what Jesus said. He says, if they stop, the rocks will cry out. On Calvary, the rocks are crying out. And ought not the stones closest to the cross feel the impact of what God himself is experiencing? Am I being too mystical here? And the tombs broke open without any human action. And corpses came to life. Here is the victory of the cross. The Son of God overcomes death through death. Here's what C.S. Lewis called the deeper magic that by willingly submitting himself to death, Jesus Christ robs death of its finality. At the moment Jesus died, death lost its grip and he could no longer hold its captives. And, and the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the greatest wonder. Matthew is referring to the curtain that separates Mark that word, separates, separates, separates. This curtain separates the holy God from, separates the holy God who is in the holy of holies from the rest of the temple. The Jewish temple was made up of a series of rooms. The first room was the so-called um, court of the Gentiles because that is as far in as Gentiles could go. The second room was the court of the women because that is as far in as Jewish women could go. Then there was the court called the holy place. That's where Jewish men could go, but mostly Jewish priests. And then the fourth room was called the holy of holies. And you might know that only one man, the high priest, can go in there, and only once a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he could only enter after going through an elaborate process of purification. And even then, he entered the Holy of Holies. He'd be, go behind that curtain at great risk to his life, fearing that if he did not do things correctly, he would burn up. A rope was tied to the high priest so that should he die in the Holy of Holies, the other priests could bring, him out, bring his body out. The curtain was there to separate, to separate, to separate, to separate. Behold, says Matthew, Look, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I wondered what the priests thought as they were in the temple. I mean, they were just outside this holy curtain, the holy of holies, offering up the sacrificial Passover lamb. The whole scene takes place, consciously so, before that huge curtain. The curtain is 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and 12 inches thick. The priests had no doubt seen the darkness descend? Did they feel the earth shake? And then mysteriously, this huge curtain rips open from the top to the bottom. Did they immediately bow or did they run for fear of their lives? Obviously, it was an act of God. No one could tear something that thick. And what does it all mean? It means, it means that the separation between the Holy One and sinners is gone. In that act, God is making visible the invisible reality taking place outside the temple up on the mountain, up on the hill. The separation has been overcome. There is no longer any need for a curtain. 
as the Son of God overcomes death through death, so he removes the judgment of forsakenness by suffering it himself. He endured the forsakenness so that we never will. Some of you may recognize the name William Cowper, a highly respected poet of the 18th century. Cowper put his massive literary skills to the use of God's glory by writing some of the most beautiful hymns in the English language. Hymns like, Oh, for a closer walk with God, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform, and there is a fountain filled with blood flowing from Emmanuel's veins, celebrating the finished work of the cross. Cowper, however, never experienced the joy that his words brought to others. He lived nearly all of his life with depression and despondency. He lived in the fear that because of his ongoing sinfulness, God might one day finally abandon him. The fear was probably rooted in the fact that his mother died when he was six years old, and he never received the kind of healing that is available for such deep wounds, and probably then transferred that experience of abandonment from his mother onto his relationship with God. For all of his powerful proclamation of the finished work of Jesus, Cowper never overcame the fear that God might forsake him. But as a testimony to the triumph of the gospel, someone chiseled on William Cowper's gravestone the last stanza of a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning. It goes like this. Yea, once Emmanuel's orphan cry, his universe hath shaken. It went up single, echoless, my God am I forsaken. It went up from the holy lips amidst the lost creation that of the lost no son should use those words of desolation. At the cross, Jesus suffers the abandonment so that we do not. And now the cry from the cross has come. Come into his presence. Come, just as we are. Really? Just as we are? Should we not first get our act together? No. Besides, which of us can get our act together? What could we ever do to open the curtain? The curtain could never be torn from the bottom up. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And look, darkness, the earth shaking, rocks splitting, graves opening, and the curtain in the temple torn in two from top to bottom. The separation is gone. The separation is gone. The separation is gone. No matter what direction you look, there is nothing in the way. It is safe for us to now press all the way into the presence of the Holy One. Oh, yes, the Holy One is still a consuming fire. But in light of the cross, we can be sure that the fire does not consume us. It only consumes that which keeps us from being who the Holy One wants us to be. Everything that needs to be done in order for us sinners to have a relationship with a holy God has been done. 
There is no more separation. And that's why we call it Good Friday. <laughs>